I'm Jordan Rain for the People's Assembly Against Austerity podcast, episode 5. Now, episode 5 is our election time special. In this episode, what gets your goat and what gets your vote? We asked you guys to let us know what the key issues are for your election time. Now, top of your list was TTIP. Not surprisingly, as it affects almost all of the other key topics from health, welfare, education, worker rights and environmental policy, to name just a few. We will be talking to one of the country's top campaigners against TTIP, John Hillary, on that topic. Second on your list was the NHS, and we talked to Dr. Carl Walker on the main party's NHS policies, including the implications of TTIP on those. After that, upcoming actions, the part where you get to take part. We are building up to our massive June 20 demonstration and festival, so spread the word. Last of all, the free download for this episode. It is, as usual, a political song with the refrain, you'll do what you're told. We'll wait till the end of the podcast to tell you who that one is about. And that's available for free download to those of you who are supporting the fight against austerity and cuts via our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash P-A-A-A. So first up, the main party policies on the NHS. And we are very pleased to have back Dr. Carl Walker, who has worked for a long period of time in the area of mental health. And he is also a member of the National Health Action Party. He's the candidate for East Worthing and Shoreham. Welcome back, Dr. Walker. The Conservatives are saying they want to put an extra £2 billion into the NHS. They're calling for an extra $8 billion a year above inflation by 2020. They've got other things in there like everyone will be able to see a GP seven days a week by 2020 and that they're going to recruit 5,000 more doctors. The problem is when they were asked the other week where they would get this money from, they were completely stumped. Um, have they come up with any answers in the meantime as to where this money is going to appear from? No, they certainly have not. What ultimately has happened is that they committed $2 billion a year back in the autumn statement, the Chancellor's autumn statement, and they made the tactical decision that that would be sufficient to address any concerns about NHS. But of course, Simon Stevens' report and the King's Fund have both said that the NHS needs between five and eight billion, probably more like eight billion just to stand still. And with them losing ground on this particular area, that is the NHS, they've obviously made a tactical decision to just come up with a number and not really worry too hard about actually justifying it. And it's exasperating because normally, in my, in my experience, you know, um, parties make some kind of attempt when you announce huge budget commitments to talk about where it's coming from, but it really hasn't been discussed whatsoever. Yes, whereas Labour have made at least some attempt to see where it's coming from, haven't they? But they do seem to be playing a numbers game as well, saying things like, we're going to put an extra $2.5 billion above the Conservatives' $2 billion, and it's going to come from mansion tax and various other corporation taxes. Yeah, but there's two problems with Labour's commitment. On the plus side, they have made an attempt to try to say where the money is going to come from. But problematically, first of all, it won't go anywhere near enough to cover the amount that the NHS needs, £2.5 billion per year, will will simply not do it. Secondly, they've decided to pull it from mansion tax, which as far as taxes that are designed to, to tax wealth or indeed to tax property, there are far, far better, far more efficient ways to do it than a mansion tax. So their, their policy on it, whilst you could argue it moves in the right direction in terms of being progressive, in terms of the actual NHS, how it runs and what it needs on a day-to-day basis, it will not be covered by what Labour has put forward. 
It's quite a telling story too when we look at where the funds are targeted. I mean, targeting itself only happens when you aren't putting up enough funds to make the whole system function adequately again. So we've got the Conservatives there targeting A&E, which is where you end up if the rest of the system is overloaded, like you don't get appointments in time or you don't get the care that you need earlier on in the picture. So they're not actually doing anything to help prevent people ending up in critical condition. They're just treating them shortly before it's too late when surely it would make more sense to make sure that less people found themselves in that state in the first place. Well, that's it. And, and ultimately, what you're seeing now, I mean, I, I, we did a talk where a group of GPs from around the country, I organised a talk down here in, in the South Coast. And what GPs were saying was they are finding themselves in a position where the queues are getting longer and longer and people are waiting longer and longer for a waiting time. And, and when they were asked by a member of the public, why is this the case? What they said was, and it's not just A&E, although A&E is a particular issue, they said that the reason that the GP's uh, waiting times are increasing so much, or a big reason, is due to the massive cuts in social care. You know, if you look at the cuts in social care in this parliament alone, you're looking at something in the region of 30%. And what happens is, you know, you still have that need. People who are elderly or vulnerable or in some sense need support end up either going to their GP or going to A&E, and it is an absolute false economy. There's cuts that we've seen in this parliament to the social care budget have been really very poorly thought through and have been very, very damaging for a lot of people, as well as the, the health infrastructure. And then we've got Labour, don't we, targeting mental health, which is exactly your specialty area. And it does seem to me that they are, again, just dealing with the end result of a culture of austerity that has put a lot of stress on people both mentally and physically. So we've got the Conservatives sorting people out once it's so bad that they're in accident and emergency, and we've got Labour offering to sort people out once it's gotten so bad that they have a nervous breakdown. It might be my cynicism coming through about both parties, but would it be an accurate description? Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, the Liberal Democrats have made mental health, they have sought to make mental health their particular domain during the election. They've made a number of big statements regarding mental health and again, mental health funding. It's almost ironic, you know, when you have any party that's committed to austerity in the way that all three of the main parties are, it's profoundly problematic for them to talk about what they intend to do for mental health services when so much of the mental health need relates to the politics and economics of austerity. So again, it's, it's these kind of false economies and, and these parties are saying the right things. Mental health, the underfunding of mental health has been prolonged for a number of years. This isn't just something that's happened during the coalition, but during the coalition there has been a 2.5% reduction in mental health budget. There's been a 10% reduction in beds. And so we've seen a service that was already absolutely heaving. It's now on its knees and it does need an injection of cash and proper, well thought through, well costed support. So far during the election from all of the parties, whenever they've mentioned mental health, it's been a tendency just to, they've been messages rather than policies, headlines rather than actually well thought through policies as to how they're going to deal with the problems in mental health. Now how about the Lib Dems? Where do they stand on the NHS and privatisation? That's a very difficult question. The reason I say it is that it's very difficult to know what Lib Dem policy and privatisation are because the Lib Dems have been part of this coalition and also because there's such differences within the Lib Dems. If you talk to a number of the Lib Dem can uh, candidates down here in the, in the South Coast, a number of them are vehemently opposed to uh, privatisation of the NHS. And it seems that a number of the party's principal leadership have been largely favourable, uh, largely in favour of, of privatisation. The problem is it's very difficult to say what the Lib Dems are, and also bearing in mind that the Lib Dems have found themselves on a number of occasions during this parliament um, compromising in order that the coalition government could function. So 
I think that they're an unknown property, whereas I think with, with Labour and with Conservative, I think it's very clear that the kinds of privatisation they favour. The Conservatives favour an all-out privatisation that is following the Health and Social Care Act and forcing CCDs to tender out services as much as possible. And that, you know, the, the Conservative Party on a whole are committed to full privatisation of the NHS. They won't say it, but that's exactly what they're committed to. Labour government are committed to the internal market, so they're still uh, committed to this notion that competition in public health is a good thing, which it isn't. And they think that the internal market is worthwhile and that there is a good place, a strong place for the private sector, um, which I think has been shown to be profoundly problematic. But there's a disparity in the degree to which they would use the, the private sector. So, so you can see with those two parties. The Liberal Democrats, I think it depends on what they look like, who their leadership is after the election, and who, if anyone, they end up going into coalition with. That does bring us to a very important point, actually, because the Lib Dems are also, of course, pro-TTIP. Now, if TTIP goes through, the parts of the NHS that have already been privatised, if they try and put them back into the public sector, governments can be sued. So the NHS is already on the slippery slope to privatisation, and if TTIP goes through, the NHS is going to end up in the private sector, regardless of what parties are saying about putting in protections like Labour, who are also pro-TTIP, say that they want to mitigate some of the clauses, but TTIP doesn't work like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the TTIP is just so profoundly problematic. You know, you hear some politicians saying, we will exempt the NHS from TTIP. Don't worry, the NHS will be safe. There are two problems with that. First of all, there's no evidence that parties currently have the capacity, the legal ability to actually exempt the NHS from TTIP. But secondly, actually, the problem here is TTIP as a whole. It's not about the NHS and how it relates to TTIP. The problem is that TTIP is an affront to democracy. That, that's ultimately what it is. What you have is a, a situation with TTIP, and TTIP follows, you know, it, it, it hasn't come from nowhere. If you look at the way that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Association uh, deal uh, between Mexico, Canada, and US in, in the mid-90s, and then they, they generated, there, there was a deal called the Multilateral Agreement on Investment, which fell through. This is something that's been building through and it's taking different forms, but ultimately the idea is to seek to reduce democratic accountability and increase the capacity of multinational corporations to, in order for them to be able to act the way that they wish to act in order to make profits. And that is the bottom line. And I think TTIP is problematic, but it's not just problematic with regards to the NHS. It's problematic because it's fundamentally undemocratic. Yep. If you vote in a government, you like the idea that that government are accountable to the people that's voted them in and that the government itself can take decisions as a result of having been voted in to protect people. What TTIP does is it takes away that accountable uh, democratic government's capacity to make those decisions. The decisions are taken when they're given to a group of solicitors to make and the way in which this is done is very often hidden and sometimes the decisions are arbitrary. And ultimately what you can have is governments with very, very tight budgets facing the possibility of being sued because it's trying to protect the, the people of the country against potential health hazards or potential low standards or food regulation or potential problems with the ways in which employees are protected. Yeah. It's really very damaging. So really, as a rough summary, we have the Conservatives who want to fully privatise the NHS but don't feel the need to say so because their full support of TTIP makes it inevitable and clear. Um, we've got Labour saying they want to protect the NHS because they know it will come under threat through their own support of TTIP. And then we've got the Lib Dems who are undecided on whether to openly state that they want the privatisation of the NHS or not, but whose support of TTIP also makes privatisation inevitable. 
Um, for anyone with the NHS at the top of their list in terms of what gets their vote, what can they do? Are there things that voters can look for to see who might be a good choice? In the NHS at the top of the agenda, I would look for parties where the party leader or a substantial number of the, the members of that particular party have signed up to Alison Pollock's NHS reinstatement bill. Now, the NHS reinstatement bill is, is a very clear bill for those who wish to take any form of marketization or privatization out of the workings of the NHS. It's a bill to try to take the NHS away from the privatized model into a fully funded state public delivery of public health. And if you look at the parties, there are some parties where the leaders are, have subscribed to this NHS reinstatement bill. People can go online, they can look at it, they can join the campaign to institute this particular bill themselves. And they can also see if their local candidates have signed up to it, because it may well be that although the parties themselves may not have signed up, local candidates of parties have signed up. And, and of course, the problem there is, for instance, let's say you have a Liberal Democrat uh, potential candidate who has signed up to the NHS reinstatement bill, who specifically said that they completely support a public uh, NHS and the removal of the, the, the internal market. That would be something that you think, as his candidate, you might think to yourself, okay, well, I can possibly get behind this candidate and vote. The problem with that is whilst that, that particular candidate may have that wish, it all depends on the ways in which the party hierarchy decide to whip members of parliament to voting at certain times. Whereas if you have the leadership of parties, so as an example, the National Health Action Party or the Green Party, with the leadership have quite clearly signed up to the NHS reinstatement bill, when you have the leadership of those parties signing up, you can almost always guarantee that your local candidates will have the capacity to express that, uh, that desire for the NHS to remain free from private profit. Thank you so much, Dr. Walker. Now, as part of the NHS talk, we did actually touch on TTIP a lot. Um, this is no accident as TTIP is one of those things that affects basically everything that's on the list of very important stuff at election time. It was also number one on the list of important issues that you guys cited that you want to hear about. For that, we really do have to commend you all as TTIP is something that is inherently linked to all of the big election issues, from housing to the NHS to fracking, education, worker rights and more. We have John Hillary back with us, arguably one of the country's top campaigners against TTIP and the executive director of War on Want. Now, last time we spoke with John, which was back in episode two, still available if you want to download it, John took us through the threats that TTIP poses. As a quick recap, TTIP is the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Pact. It isn't generally spoke about in mainstream media because much of it is being negotiated in secret. But when it is spoken about, it is in very misleading terms, generally with the focus on eliminating barriers and the hope that people will assume that all barriers are bad things. Now, most of those barriers are, of course, things that European countries, including the UK, have fought very hard for over the years. There are things like environmental protections, worker right protections, public access to health, welfare and education, to name a few. Obviously, eliminating things like environmental protections, worker rights baselines and public access to services are not positives. More worrying still is the investor-state dispute settlement system that comes part and parcel with TTIP, and it's a system that will allow investors to sue governments who pass laws or regulations that interfere with companies' right to profit. 
That means, for example, things like Labor's proposed rent caps that stop corporate landowners from charging more would be suable. It means, too, that the already privatised sections of the NHS will invite litigation should a government wish to return them to the public sector. It means wage bargaining and minimum wage will be under threat too and the Environmental Protection Acts that prevent private companies from using land in ways they see fit to maximise profit may also be targets for legal action, as will regulations that limit the use of substances deemed by European authorities as toxic. So it really is an all-encompassing agreement that goes far beyond trade and into the roots and core of our everyday lives at all levels. Terrifyingly, all of the major political parties are in support of it, though Labour hopes to mitigate the clauses that would result in the full privatisation of the NHS. We talked to John Hillary on the policies of the major parties surrounding TTIP and whether Labour's putting a bubble around the NHS is actually possible at all. Hi John and welcome back. Let's start with just a brief summary of the major parties' positions on TTIP. Yeah, what we've seen at the moment is all the political parties coming out with statements on TTIP in their party manifestos. And the Conservative um, position is just very short and sweet. They're saying full steam ahead. We love TTIP. It's all about transferring power to big business. And obviously, that's exactly what the Conservative Party was set up to do. For Labour, it's a bit more difficult because they know there's this massive movement which is saying no to TTIP and more than just it being every other person you can meet, it's also the trade unions. And the trade union link to Labour remains a strong link. So the fact that the trade unions are saying no and have a policy of outright opposition to TTIP is a big problem for Labour. So Labour has now said, well, we we approve of the idea of TTIP. We like the principles behind it. But we hear that people are unhappy about the NHS being you know, sold out for irreversible privatisation. And also we recognise this threat which people have raised their alarm about, um, which comes with these new corporate courts and the ability of US corporations to sue any future government for loss of profits. So Labour's sort of saying, yeah, we hear you, but actually we're not going to change course. And I think that's what's profoundly problematic about a situation where if Labour's going to form a a government, they're still coming in with a pro-TTIP line. Now, many of us following TTIP have read that Labour are suggesting sort of fix-up tactics for TTIP. So they're trying to put a bubble around the NHS, for example, whilst keeping TTIP. They want TTIP, but they're very aware of public dissatisfaction with things like the NHS um, being undermined. Is this approach actually doable? Because it sounds like they're treating TTIP as a sort of Lego kit where they can just detach the bits they don't want. And given that law doesn't really work like that, is this a realistic or doable suggestion? No, it really isn't. And, um, you know, Labour is, is playing fast and loose here. They know that the central principles of TTIP are the problem. You know, that idea that everything has to be subordinated to the needs of capital, to this profit-making imperative. And that means not just just the NHS, you know, look at all of the other public services which will be in the frame. Education, rail, if you want to renationalise the railways, forget it. You know, once you've opened up a market like that, you can't get it back when it's already been included in a trade deal. But there's water, there's sewerage, there's the postal services, financial services, which we would like to see coming into a proper public control. All of these will be lost irrevocably. 
And then on top of that, this idea that in the future, if you ever want to raise standards, whether it be environmental standards or labor standards or food safety standards, you'll be clobbered by so many lawsuits that no government will ever consider that a possibility. So I think it's completely wrong to suggest you can have a, a people-friendly TTIP, as Labour would like us to believe. Um, everything about TTIP is a disaster, and that's why we just say no, get rid of it altogether. It really is a bit of a no-possible-win situation with all the major parties on TTIP, unless you're lucky enough to be able to vote for the Scottish National Party, who are more against than for. What can we do as voters to try and make sure that when we cast our vote, it doesn't just end up supporting TTIPs going through? Well, the, the first advice I'd give is to go to our, our website, thewaronmont.org, um, where you'll see that one of the most recent news pieces we've put up is a page which actually takes the TTIP section from every single one of the party manifestos. That's the Greens, both the Scottish Greens and the Greens in in, in England and Wales, also Tusk, the Trade Union Socialist Coalition, Left Unity, Pied, and you know, all of the all of the um, parties are in there. Except actually, we're still waiting for the, the Scottish National Party, and I think that's going to be interesting because the SNP has blown a bit hot and cold on this in the past. But my my advice to people is have a look at this, then think about all of the other things that you want to make a protest vote or you make to want to really get into the political domain and make your choice accordingly. Obviously, we're not going to suggest to everybody how they vote, how people vote is entirely up to them. But I do think it's really important for people to see this as a key moment in our democratic lives. It's by far not the only one. And, and, you know, let's be frank, there are many more powerful things we can do every five years than just putting a cross on a piece of paper. But it's an opportunity to raise issues up the public agenda. You know, we can make things political, which maybe at other times of the year we'll struggle to get onto the canvas. And that's why I think it's an important time to be saying, look, TTIP is going to be a major force in the future. That's why we want all politicians to wake up, listen to what we're saying, and then start making changes to their party positions if they're not in line with public opinion. Well, this seems to be the thing that the election is looming and the major parties have not really taken on board public opinion on TTIP. So it's obviously going to be something that extends beyond the election. So what can we do to continue the fight against TTIP? Because it is obviously going to be an ongoing thing, regardless of who gets into power. Well, of course, after the general election, um, TTIP is really still going to be motoring ahead. And we know that um, there are two really important dates coming up for us. The, the first of these is a vote in the Trade Committee of the European Parliament, where they're going to be looking at TTIP and giving their blessing to its continuation, or they're going to be saying we've got some real problems with it. And then the second one is going to be in June, when the whole of the European Parliament is going to vote in plenary session on that resolution. And these these are not binding resolutions. They're not the final say that the European Parliament will have over TTIP. That's still, you know, a couple of years, three, four, five years in the distance. But what, what this does do is it sends a strong message to the European Commission and all of the governments of Europe saying, actually, the Parliament is unhappy because you've put so much into TTIP, which is toxic, that in, unless you radically change direction, then we're not going to let this through. And I think that's why we've all been working with MEPs. And, and I think it's important for people 
after the 7th of May, when everybody's you know, focus is going to go back to, to normal, put pressure on your MEP and say, we know you've got this vote coming up on TTIP. We want you to represent us properly, not sell us down the river. And I think that's still a, an important next stage in building pressure on TTIP. That is a very key part of this for the election, isn't it? The idea that governments should represent us properly and fighting TTIP has actually become a national, actually a global movement that governments can't credibly ignore anymore. In fact, for those people that didn't make it long, we both took part in the No to TTIP Global Day of Action on April the 18th and... And I was at a wonderful zombie march in Manchester, and they had a zombie march in Paris too. And you were in London for the Global Day of Action, weren't you, John? What did you guys get up to? I was I was at Shepherd's Bush in West London, where we had a really nice meeting on Shepherd's Bush, Bush Green with lots and lots of different groups represented, groups on the environmental side, trade unions, people campaigning for the NHS. And we went and we visited some of the companies um, who were in the frame for this. We went to Virgin to highlight the fact that Virgin is now delivering frontline NHS services. We went to BP, which is one of the groups pushing hard for TTIP to include an energy chapter. And we went to to Kentucky Fried Chicken because it was there and we wanted to remind people that chlorine chicken is coming through TTIP. Um, It was a fascinating um, day to bring out all of these, these different aspects. But I think really exciting was to look worldwide and to see that global movement of people taking to the streets and saying no to TTIP, but also no to all of the other free trade deals which are threatening people's lives in different parts of the world. So this is truly a global movement, and that's what means we're going to win. Thank you very much, John. And for those of you who are interested in more in-depth information on TTIP, you can go back to Episode 2 of the People's Assembly Against Austerity podcast, where we interview John Hillary in-depth about the implications of TTIP. That is available free for download on iTunes and SoundCloud. To our upcoming actions, the part where you get to take part. Of course, first on the list is the June 20 demo. It's going to be a huge demo and also a festival at the same time. It's where we all get to go out together, have a voice and be heard and demand from the new government, whoever gets into power, that we end austerity now. Now, it's more than just a demonstration. It is also a festival. There'll be stalls. There'll be all sorts of things going on. So it's not to be missed. That's June the 20th. Spread the word. We also have on Saturday, April the 25th at 10.30am, the Derby TUC Silk Mill March and Rally. Further details available on our website at thepeoplesassembly.org.uk. We also have some people's question times coming up. These are very popular. There's one in Cardiff on Thursday, April the 23rd at 6.30pm. We have the Black Country People's Question Time that is Thursday, April the 30th at 6.45pm at the New Hampton Arts Centre. Now last of all for our subscribers, this song is one of my own, partly because I didn't have time to contact the other political bands I know to get a track. This is a song called The Annihilation Sequence. It is about David Cameron's sort of central policy really and that we should all just do what we're told. Um, It is available for a free download for those of you who have subscribed to the Patreon site and whose support goes directly into fighting austerity. For those of you that would like to hear more, head to Jordan Rain, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-E-Y-N-E dot bandcamp dot com. We know what's good for you. We know every little thing.
thing 